Have you ever done something so bad that you thought to yourself, I'm done? I'm finished. I'm not sure that I can ever recover from this. So when my dad, my friends, my boss, my spouse finds out, I don't know what's going to happen. My parents are going to ground me. My friends will never talk to me again. My boss is going to fire me. Or my spouse, well, my spouse, I don't know if they'll ever forgive me. These are moments that you don't want to remember because they're so painful. But I'm asking, have you ever done something so bad that you didn't think you could recover? I want you to remember that feeling, the pain, the sorrow, the agony of your sin, and the hopeless feeling of not knowing how things are going to turn out. Are you going to experience the joy of forgiveness, the relief of redemption, or the condemnation and the painful consequences that you know you rightly deserve? Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because Israel is in such a time as this. Remember last week, Exodus 32. They committed the sin of spiritual adultery by creating a golden calf. So not worshiping God exclusively, not worshiping God rightly, and not having an appropriate reverence for God's name or God's glory. So while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving instructions about the tabernacle, Right, The appointed means of, of God dwelling in Israel's presence, they're down below giving way to unbridled idolatry, worshiping something they created in place of the Creator, causing separation between them and God. So Moses comes down, he breaks the tablets, symbolizing Israel's broken promise and God's shattered relationship, and the rest of Exodus 32 is the sober dose of reality, the horrific consequences of sin. Confrontation with leaders, death of unrepentant sinners, ongoing effects including the plague. And most significantly, God's saying to them, I'm no longer going to dwell in your presence. So essentially, God divorcing his people. That's the worst consequence of all. And Israel knows it, Exodus 33, 4. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. So Israel knows the seriousness of what she's done. She's feeling the horrific consequences of sin. But the question remains, can anything be done about it? Can the situation be turned around? Is there hope of restoration, of reconciliation, of recovery? And oh, by the way, all of that matters not just for them, but for every single one of us this morning. Because idolatry isn't limited to the ancient Near Eastern world. Unfortunately, it's alive and well today. So although we don't worship a golden calf, we certainly worship things other than the Lord our God, including money, Financial security, sexuality, academic success, athletic ability, professional achievements, being good, being in good shape, being liked, being appreciated, being successful, the list goes on and on. But the point is this, 
Every single one of us are idol worshipers. And idolatry is clearly a heinous sin in God's eyes who says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. Not one of us in this room has done that. So is there hope for Israel after the golden calf? And more importantly, is there hope for us after our idolatry? Praise God, the answer is yes, there's hope. But it's lodged in a mediator, the man Moses, who points us forward over and over and over again to the Lord Jesus, who is our ultimate hope of recovery, redemption, and reconciliation with the Lord our God. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, page 73, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also encourage you to grab my outline, God's glory, God's grace, title of the sermon this morning. Exodus 33, follow along as I read verses 7 to 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which, notice, was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses." And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I want you to connect the dots. Because Moses was on the mountain literally getting plans for the tabernacle, really, really detailed plans so that God could dwell in their presence. But as a result of the people's idolatry, so their sin, God no longer dwells with his people. Exodus 33, 3, God said, I will not go up among you. So the connection, sin is what separates us from God's presence. So the golden calf resulted in God saying, I'm not dwelling with you anymore, which also means the plans for the tabernacle are through. None of that's going to happen at this point in time. So Moses pitches a new tent, the tent of meeting outside the camp, away from Israel. Moses goes outside the camp, away from the sinful people in order to meet with God. That's what's happening, A, outside the camp. And now look at what's happening, B, inside the tent. Because God's presence was obviously visible to all of Israel. Where? At the tent of meeting. So the pillar of cloud by day and no doubt the pillar of fire by night, which both smoke and fire represent God. So a theophany, a physical display of God's presence descending on the tent whenever Moses entered. 
See, the whole point is to show that although God has distanced himself from the people, he has not distanced himself from Moses, the mediator. So Moses has a very unique, very special, very intimate relationship with God. You could say it's almost like a father with his son. Verse 11, thus the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, or you could say as a father speaks to his son. That's incredible. Now, just for clarity, this isn't God sitting there speaking to Moses face to face as if God's there in a physical body. No, God is spirit. Verse 20 makes it clear no one can see God's physical face and live. But God is present. And he's there in a very personal relationship. Verse 11, God and Moses are friends. That relationship, that that single, unique, father-son relationship where Moses serves as mediator between God and his people is going to be absolutely critical to move Israel from, number one, God's separation from his people to, number two, God's restoration of his people. Now, before I read those verses, I want you to see the layout for the rest of this section because Moses intercedes on behalf of the people on three different occasions. And in each of those interactions, Moses makes three different requests. You can see them listed right there in your outline. So A, a request for God's presence. B, a request for God's glory. And then C, a request for God's forgiveness. Now what's incredible, before we even go there, is that in every single interaction between Moses and God, Moses interceding for the people with God, making three very specific requests. God answers all three in the positive. Incredible. Let's start with Moses' request for God's presence. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 17. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God said to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For, I have, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now, Lots going on here, but fundamentally, Moses is requesting God's presence. So he's asking for God to dwell among his people again. So as a result of their sin, God said, I will not go with you. So Moses is asking, please, Lord, go with us. Earlier in chapter 2, God said, I will send an angel. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and even the mosquito bites. But Moses wants more. 
He says, Lord, show me your ways that I may know you. So show me specifically how to lead your people into your land. Given all the challenges between here and there and the fact that we need to drive out all these people, which is no small task. We'll see that in a moment. Look at verse 14. God says, my presence will go with you. But that you is singular. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. That's a promise only for Moses because everything's singular here. But that's not acceptable to Moses. He doesn't want God for himself. He wants God for all of the people. That's why he comes back to God in verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we, the people of God, are distinct? I and your people. Do you see what Moses is doing? As the covenant mediator, he's binding his future with the future of God's people. So he identifies himself with them and links his destiny with their destiny. His well-being with their well-being. And how awesome that he declares God's glory is seen most clearly in making a people who live gloriously different than the nations around them. Meaning the glory of God's promise is not in making just one person gloriously different than the nations around them, but a people, the people of God, plural, ultimately, that's not the nation of Israel. That's the church who live gloriously different, are distinct, unique, stand out, live differently, act differently, love not hate, humility not pride, obedience to God's commands, not rejection of God's commands. Here's what's so unbelievably fantastic. Look at verse 17. God says, this very thing you have spoken, Moses, I will do. Why will he do it? For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So this is restoration based entirely on Moses' relationship and intercession with God. So God's not restoring his presence based on Israel's response, Israel's behavior, or Israel's obedience. No, not a chance. This is entirely based on Moses and Moses' merit. Now, do you have any idea how the Old Testament plays out? How all of this goes for the nation of Israel? Israel will again and again, over and over, over, play the harlot. Unfaithful to God, unfaithful to his commandments, unfaithful to her promises, worshiping false gods all over the place. So the promise of a people who are actually distinct, actually live gloriously different, actually stand out in a positive way in their culture must point forward to a greater mediator and a greater covenant. So even as we read Exodus 33, you can't help but think of the Lord Jesus. 
I mean, think about how he's a greater mediator, one without sin. Think about how he has a greater relationship with God. He is the Son of God. Think about how he establishes a much greater covenant, one where he is intimately and eternally bound up with those he came to save. Hebrews 2 says, he became like us in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. How does he do that? By making propitiation for the sins of his people. So Jesus had the glory of God's presence all to himself in heaven, but he gave it up for us, for our salvation. He fully identified himself with us in our humanity, and he fully identified with us in our depravity. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So be clear, we're forgiven, not because of any merit on our own, but because of the merit of Christ. We're forgiven because God is pleased with Jesus. And therefore, God is pleased with us. Because in Christ, by faith, we've been clothed with his absolute perfect righteousness, which is the good news of the gospel. And as a result, by the gift of God's spirit, we actually become a people who live gloriously different than the world around us. We actually become distinct, unique. We actually stand out in a positive way. Love, not hate. Humility, not pride. Obedience, not rejection. So in Christ, God's presence is fully realized with God's people. Essentially, God says this very thing that you have spoken to me, Jesus I will do. For you and your sacrifice have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name, my beloved son. Moses' first request, God's presence. Moses' second request, God's glory. Follow along as I read, starting in Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, Please, Lord, Show me your glory. That's the second request. Lord, show me your glory. Verse 19, and God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. This is number one, God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things, including who he shows mercy to and who he's gracious to, which means God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. Paul makes that abundantly clear when he quotes this verse in Romans 9. So we see God's sovereignty, but we also see here God's instruction. Look at verse 20. God also said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God instructs Moses specifically on how this is going to work so he might see God's glory. But he also instructs him on one other thing. 
Exodus 34, 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now, I'm not sure if you realize what's going on here, but this is very encouraging news because essentially God's instruction is to rewrite the tablets, the Ten Commandments which represents a restoration of God's covenant with God's people. So if you will, think about the marriage illustration, right? Because this would be like a couple who just got married whose wife was unfaithful to her husband while still being on the honeymoon, right? That's exactly what took place, Exodus 32. She had made promises to God, but then immediately she's unfaithful. So you're anticipating a separation to take place. But as we look at Exodus 34, we recognize the husband is not taking off. Instead, he's being unbelievably gracious and kind and forgiving. And he's willing to stay in the game as long as there's a renewal of the wedding vows. So essentially, he's willing to say, let's try this again. And all of that, of course, is grounded on number three, God's character represented in God's name. Look at verse five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 8. How does Moses respond? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, frankly, these verses are absolutely incredible because God is revealing himself. And God is declaring exactly who he is in all of his glory. Right? Moses said, show me your glory. Well, here it is. The glory of God's perfect character. So what do we learn about God? Well, that God is merciful and gracious. To be merciful is to be sympathetic and compassionate. To be gracious is to extend undeserved favor or even ill-deserved favor. But is God only gracious or only merciful? No, God is both merciful and gracious. One theologian notes that the pairing of both mercy and grace reveals an incredible disposition to show favor that goes so far beyond any human calculation which is evident and obvious when it's paired with the phrase that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
So God is far from being a frustrated deity who strikes out against those who oppose him. Instead, he is patient. He is long-suffering. He is kind. Not just with people he likes, but even with sinners. Giving opportunity after opportunity, time after time for them to repent and believe, to be saved and to live for the glory of God. And he abounds in all of these qualities. Abounding means that God does, and what God does far exceeds what we could ever hope or imagine. He abounds in love. He abounds in faithfulness. He abounds in keeping steadfast love for thousands, as we know a number that no man can count. And he abounds in forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So every single form of disobedience against an infinitely holy God. That's God's glory. And I would say, here's a great question to ask. How would you summarize all that you've heard about God's character so far? Couldn't you say in summary that God is a God of mercy and grace? Because none of this is deserved. Certainly none of it is earned. So God is mercy and grace. But he's not just mercy and grace, is he? He's also truth and justice. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 7. God will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I don't think that means future generations are eternally condemned for their parents' sin. I don't think that. But instead, that the impact of sin isn't limited to the individual who commits the sin. But instead, it affects others. Like your kids. Like your grandkids. And in a cultural context like this, there were often three or four generations living in the same house under the same roof. So it makes total sense that the consequences of one generation's sin would impact the other generations, the third and the fourth generations. But don't let that distract you from the main point. God is not just a God of mercy and grace, but he's a God of truth and justice. See, if you just have grace and mercy, you're thinking, man, I can get away with anything. It doesn't really matter. But he's not just mercy and grace. He's truth and justice. So he will execute justice. He will punish sin. Because if he didn't do that, then he'd no longer be God. Now, even as we look at the character of God and the actions of God, I cannot help but think of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Why is that? Well, because John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then John says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of Grace and truth. He dwelt among us in all of his glory, grace and truth. 
Verse 17 even clarifies what that means. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized. They came to fruition in the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of God's character. He is grace and truth. But even more than that, just think about the cross. Because the cross is where God's justice meets God's mercy. And where these two seemingly opposite realities find their perfect harmony. Because God's justice against sin was poured out on Jesus. Why? So that God's mercy can be offered to all those who repent and believe in him. So in his person, Jesus is grace and truth. And in his work, Jesus satisfies God's justice and Jesus offers God's mercy to anyone who will but believe in him. And what's the result? See, it's God's forgiveness. Look again in verse 8. As a result of seeing God's glory and God's character, Moses bows his head to the earth and he worships God. So he praises God for who he is and he worships God for what he ultimately offers to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, request number three. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. That's an incredible ask. Right? I mean, you, you, you think about the other two asks. Those, those were big asks, weren't they? I mean, holy smokes, Moses, request number two. Show me your glory. Wow! That's an incredible, that's a big ask. God, show me your glory. Make yourself known to me. Which God does. Then he goes here. <laughs> right? Don't you, I read this text and I think, holy smokes, he's going to ask for more. This is a big ask. That God might forgive their iniquity, their transgression, and their sin. And make them his inheritance. That's a big ask. Please realize that comes right after the revelation of God's character. My point is that yes, God forgives his people because of Moses' intercession. So at one level, Moses the mediator secures their forgiveness. But more important, underneath that, under, undergirding that reality is God's character. So God forgives them, not just because Moses intercedes, but because God is the one who is merciful and gracious. God is the one who is truth and justice. And that's evident and obvious when you look to the cross. Let me ask you this question. Whose idea was the cross? Was that man's idea? No. That was God's idea. God devised a plan where he could be both just 
and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. He made a way so there could be perfect justice and perfect mercy side by side. Right there as we look to the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. God's justice satisfied. God's mercy offered. Let me just speak to anyone who has not yet responded to the Lord Jesus in faith. I so desperately want to appeal to you. I mean, remember where we started this morning, right? Asking the question, have you ever done something so bad that you thought to yourself, I'm not sure I can ever recover from this? I'm telling you, you have. You've sinned against an infinitely holy God. How specifically? Well, by worshiping everything but the Lord your God. That's what idolatry is. It's worshiping anything but the one thing that is worthy of our worship. Namely, the Lord Jesus. But here's the glory of the gospel. There is a way to recover. There's a way to be restored. There's a way to experience reconciliation. But it's only in the Lord Jesus. It's only in Him. The greater than Moses, who is a greater mediator, who offers a greater covenant, that by faith, not by works, in Christ and His finished work, perfect justice can be satisfied. And you can find perfect mercy for every single one of your sins. Dear unbeliever, how good would it feel to be perfectly forgiven? To be thoroughly cleansed? For the slate of, of all the things that you have done wrong over the course of the years, all the things that you know are there that maybe nobody else knows, how great would it feel to know that that slate is washed clean? No guilt, no shame, no feelings of condemnation. I appeal to you, dear sinner, take Jesus up on his offer and experience the great joy of having your sins forgiven and the great relief of finally being a person who's empowered to live for his glory. What do you think that looks like? It looks like worship. Look at verse 8. Moses bowed his head to the earth and he worshiped God. Which looks like, number one, God's call to pure devotion. And number two, God's call to pure worship. If you will, follow along as I continue to read Exodus 34, verses 10 to 28. God said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, 
such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, and all the people among you, among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Here's the call to pure devotion. Verse 12, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of their sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Are you seeing all the different ways God is calling these people to be totally devoted to him? So very practical, very helpful, very proactive advice. When you get to the promised land, don't join yourself to the people of the land. Don't join yourself in political treaties. Don't join yourself in religious practices. And don't join yourself in marriage. Because they're going to be a snare to you. So what should you do? Well, you should tear down their idols so you worship God exclusively. And you shall only marry people who worship Yahweh so that you worship God rightly. Do you understand? That would be great advice for us to heed this morning. This is very practical stuff. Paul says essentially the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians 6. He argues to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He says, what what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? He says, chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is God's call to pure devotion, which means that we're actually impacting the people around us with the good news of the gospel rather than being impacted by them, where they turn us away from the good news of the gospel that we've believed. More on that in just a moment. Number two, God's call to pure worship. Moses continues. I'm going to skip through this one a little quicker by highlighting what the verses say, right? So number two, God's call to pure worship. Moses continues, verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Verse 19. You shall consecrate to me all the firstborn. That's a summary of what he's saying. Verse 21, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 22, you shall observe the feast of weeks. Verse 45, you shall remember the Passover. Then we get to verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Why did I skip through so quickly? Well, because I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. 
The point here is that God calls Israel to be faithful in their regular worship of God. Because that's one of the biggest ways in which God works in his people's lives. So when they gather to worship all these different ways, they're reminded of their salvation. They're reminded of God's call on their lives that they are to be a holy people, to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be wholly devoted to him. And they're reminded of his constant provision and his unending care. All of that takes place through the regular faithful worship of God. Now, do you realize the New Testament equivalent is what we're doing right here? Right? The, the weekly Sunday morning gathering. The regular faithful, God-ordained, God-given means of grace that he has commanded us to participate in for our own growth and edification. That we, might re- that we might be reminded of our own salvation. Reminded of God's call on our lives that we would be holy. Reminded that we are to be a people who are to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be wholly devoted to him. And to be reminded of his constant provision and his unending care. Number one, God's call to pure devotion. Number two, God's call to pure worship. Both very purposeful for our good and for God's glory. What's the result? It's number three, God's transformation. So that we might shine just like Moses as lights in the world. If you would follow along as I read the rest of the chapter, verses 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. So all the people are hearing all that God had spoken. Verse 33, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. So the radiance of God's glory is visible on Moses' face. He's literally glowing like the sun. But I want you to notice the details. That despite their fear, Moses commands all the people to hear all that God has commanded. And Moses is very purposeful with the veil. So he leaves his face unveiled when he's speaking the word of God. 
So his face is unveiled when he's speaking authoritatively. He's unveiled when he's representing God to the people. But he's veiled when he's just hanging out. Veiled when he's not representing God. Two points as we wrap up this morning. The first is that I want you to see how these verses point forward to the glory of Christ. And then secondly, how they point forward to the people of God. So first, the glory of Christ. As you know, Moses is constantly pointing us forward to the greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus, who is the greater mediator who offers a greater covenant, right? The book of Hebrews. By the way, I think we're going to go to the book of Hebrews after the summer Sermon on the Mount series. It just seems obvious to me, like we spend more time almost in Hebrews than we do in Exodus, so we might as well just preach through that book as well, right? Okay, so, so Hebrews is all over that. Here's a question. How does Hebrews begin? Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. And that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. Then if you add that to John 14, 8, right? Jesus says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you possibly say to me, Philip, show us the Father? For I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And how can Philip know that for sure? Because Jesus speaks with all authority. He speaks with the authority of God because he is God. Again, John 1.14, we beheld God's glory. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why does that matter? Well, because he actually has the power through his word and through his spirit to transform us from one degree of glory to another. I mean, do you recognize what was wrong with the old covenant? What's wrong with the old covenant? The old covenant only has the ability to highlight your sin, but it has no power to transform you. Which is why Jesus is better. And Jesus is greater. A greater mediator and a greater covenant, which not only highlights your sin through his word, but transforms your life through his spirit. Which brings us to be the people of God. You know, according to Exodus 34, God promises a people who will live gloriously different than the world around them. So people who are distinct, unique, stand out, live differently, act differently, love differently. Here's what's fantastic. Moses' face gives us a visual picture of what we're supposed to look like as God's people. We are called to be a people who radiate God's glory. We're called to be a people who have the exact representation of his nature. Philippians 2.16 says we're to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. It says we're to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Where? Where are we supposed to do that? In a holy huddle inside the church where nobody sees us? No. 
in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Dear believer, we have absolutely, we absolutely need to be in the world, but we most definitely need to not be of the world. Boy, oh boy, that sure sounds like Exodus 34, doesn't it? Exactly. Which, from my humble perspective, we stink at. Me included. I mean, it sure seems to me like we've mastered being in the world. But we have not mastered not being of the world. Which means... The world is having its impact on our thinking and on our actions, but we're not actually impacting the world at all. Because we're in the world. And so often we're of the world. You see, we need to be impacting the world for Christ's sake. Paul commands us to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So our light, the light of our lives, should be penetrating the darkness because that's what light does. It always, always, always penetrates the darkness. Light can't help but be noticed. Light does not fit in. It cannot hide. It doesn't want to hide and it cannot be forgotten because light has nothing to do with the darkness. Light dominates the darkness. Think about Moses. Moses could not help but be noticed. He couldn't help it because his face was glowing. Most important thing that I can say to you this morning, if you've slept for the last 10 minutes, wake up. This is the most important thing that you can hear me say this morning. Right? Moses' face was shining. He could not help that. Why was his face shining? Because he had been with God. The glory of God that he had experienced was radiating out of him. Do you know they said the exact same thing about the disciples? The disciples couldn't help but be noticed. Acts 4.13 tells us, because they had been with Jesus. Here's the question, dear believer. Is your life gloriously different than the darkness around you? Is the light of your life actually penetrating the darkness? Or is the darkness penetrating the light of your life? Are you speaking truth into the lies? Are you offering love where there's hate? Are you offering kindness where there's hostility, acceptance where there's rejection, humility where there's pride? Is the light of your life impacting the darkness? Or is the darkness impacting your life? If the darkness is impacting the light of your life, why is that? 
Here's why. Because you haven't spent enough time with God. There's no quick fixes in the Christian life. Hey, I'll just go to church on Sunday morning. That'll be a quick fix. Then my light, light of my life will shine. Hey, maybe if that's not enough, I'll just pick up a quick accountability partner. Maybe I'll talk to them once a week. That'll be sufficient. Then the light of my life will shine. It doesn't work that way. You need, to t- you need to spend time with God. The glory of God. Dwelling in His presence. Delighting in His character. Being in His Word. Meditating. Memorizing. Allowing the glory of God in His Word and in prayer to wash over you. So that you might be the radiance of the Father's glory. And the exact representation of His nature. As we shine as lights in the midst of a dark and dying world. May God give us the grace to do just that. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we recognize so often that the darkness of this world is actually penetrating the light of our lives. Father, I ask that you would forgive us of that reality. Help us to delight ourselves in the Lord our God. Help us to dwell in your presence. We pray that the word would have its good effect on our minds. We pray that the Spirit of God would impact our hearts. That the light of our lives would shine. That we couldn't help but shine that we would radiate the Father's glory, that we would live life as the exact representation of his nature. Father, we're asking that you would do that good work in our minds and in our hearts for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.